0: Okay, Mm mm-hmm, all right, here we go, welcome back to another show, (laughs) (laughs) episode four, turn out the lights, shut the door, it's Felix, and now, coming to you from our place in the mountains, Of Peru, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, we might as well just keep rolling. I'll let you get situated, Felix.
1: Places, people, places. (sighs) Wow, this is a whole new experience.
0: Yeah, we both have headphones now, so where you can hear our voices as they would sound on the recording, it's much more immersive this way. I like it. Me too. Yeah, I feel like we're in a bubble. Yeah. (laughs) And like you said, maybe we should just, even when we're not recording, just put headphones on and speak into the mic so that we're really immersed. Because now it's like you're speaking straight into my brain rather than air getting in the way, you know. (laughs) I'm trying not to laugh really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Because it feels like that. You're getting in my head, man. (laughs) Oh, man.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, it would be good for us to do that.
0: Outside of this, because then we get really used to
1: talking into the mic.
0: Yeah, because it's it's the benefit of because the good thing about speaking on the phone is it just goes straight into your ear, and so it's you like when I'm on the phone, it's easier for me to really pay attention. But it's also difficult because the person's not right there, so there's no nonverbal cues. So this is the best of both worlds. Well, it's really helpful
1: for my ADD. D, 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 D. Uh, especially because there's always things happening in the yard and people walking by, I'm like, oh, dogs running around. Yeah, there's a car.
0: Yeah, now the, uh, the apocalypse can happen and we won't even notice. We'll just we keep wouldn't hear anything. Yeah, yeah. We'll finish the podcast and it'll be an empty desert out there, and we'll have to. Oh man, that would be a really cool name for a podcast. Em- podcast at the
1: end of the world. Oh yeah, it a- feels like the end of the world.
0: A apocalypse, a podcast. Apoca podcast, nice apocalyptic cast. <laughs> uh, how are you today, Mister Felix? Great. We had a great morning. We did. What did we do? We, uh, well, there's a project here in our community. So here, where we are in Peru, uh, there, there are uh, communities of people, small villages up in the mountains, and even around us. And a lot of these people uh, have very minimal material wealth they don't have much at all and with this pandemic a lot of them who depended on tourism so these are people that uh they organize hikes for tourists and and mules and carrying bags and uh tour guides or people in these high mountain communities that actually host uh hikers you know they don't have any income now i mean uh, a lot of them have land and small crops and things so anyway there's a project here and Basically, uh, one of our friends raised a bunch of money or some money through uh, some kind of crowdfunding campaign. And with the goal to provide uh, food, basically food baskets to families in need. And so this is helping 70 different families in these communities. And uh, the goal is, and I think they've achieved it, to raise enough money to supply these food baskets, uh, for I think the next six months through our winter, through our winter here, which is kind of the most difficult time. So it's, it's cool, man. It's sometimes, I think one of the challenges living here for me is just like, sometimes I don't feel like I'm connected to the local community a lot. And, and part of that is just due to huge difference in culture and, uh, Yeah, it's hard to connect with people who have a totally different background and life experience. There's also linguistic differences. So a lot of these people hardly speak Spanish. They speak Quechua. And Uh, even if they do speak
1: Spanish, it's very hard to understand.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. But they're amazing people. They're beautiful people. And, yeah, I'm just happy. I mean, it feels good to just do some It was basically manual labor. We're weighing out bags of rice and carrots and all that kind of stuff and it's like the old drug days yeah (laughs) yeah that's right we're weighing keys (laughs) just kidding no it was was a really beautiful experience to see you know
1: the expat community come together to support these other communities and um some of them are three plus hours away like
0: yeah by foot no roads. yeah yeah these mountains i mean i've been on several hikes here where i'll just stumble upon a random village it's way tucked up in a little valley or a mountain that i had no idea existed and these people they live there and and the kids that are there a lot of them they'll walk 3 hours down the mountain every day to go to school and then walk back and and their shoes they wear basically sandals that they make out of recycled tires you know and they're just running up and down the mountain like it's nothing they have amazing lung capacity <laughs> it's incredible uh soph and i took a a hike up the mountain. Yeah,
1: and these two kids came running up the steepest part. We went through the shortcut, that first shortcut, and they came running up behind us, past us, came running back and did it again. And we were like sitting there, like puffing, sitting on the ground, <laughs> just completely out of breath. And these kids, it was nothing to them. It was nothing. It was yeah, nothing.
0: Yeah, because we're where we are. I think we're at almost nine thousand feet here, and so um, yeah, you get up there, you're up to eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand feet, and. Well, even up at Casita Varan, it's about
1: 10,000 feet. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Okay. It increases That's that much. where we were this morning, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that's nice. It always... I mean, I just enjoy manual kind of mindless labor. It's, I don't know. It just feels good. Like <laughs> We didn't stop either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, hey, more smoke break, anybody? No. Nope. No, no smoke breaks. Okay. <laughs> no
1: mapacho. <laughs> no mapacho.
0: Yeah, so... But I
1: think through this whole crisis period people are coming together in a big way more and more um not just in you know here in peru but i'm seeing it around the world it's like really hard times bring the best out of people and the worst
0: yeah a little bit of both a but little bit of both totally uh i'm seeing that here too I, I see a lot of effort on behalf of the expat community most of the people you know so foreigners from all over the world live in this area because it's super beautiful and you know most of the foreigners have m- more material wealth than most of the locals. And so, you know, that can either be perceived as a, a point of contention and separation, or actually it's an opportunity to come together because we have, we're able to help these people. So
1: it it is a point of contention to when we start separating us and them. Yeah. And, and I, I hate to say that I see that but I do see that sometimes Oh yeah for sure and it's it's sad but like I feel the vast majority of us hope to give back to the community at large in general I mean I you know in our work it's like man how how am I separating myself from my local community how am I you know keeping this segregation uh rolling instead of actually including them in what we're doing and what our lives and our mentalities and yeah like we had a great day getting relatively drunk which we barely ever do but we brought oh, last a, month yeah we brought our neighbor Grimaldo over and uh I mean we got drunk but we had a great conversation he got to see that we're not so different and I think that was such an eye-opening thing he works in in tourism and giving people tours up in the mountains mm-hmm. but he, yeah, to hear our opinions, to hear our, our thoughts and, and how we act with each other, he was, he was pretty shocked. He
0: was yeah, like, and I learned a lot from him that day. One thing I learned that day, we were talking about the quarantine and, you know, in Peru, there's all these restrictions that you can't, you're not supposed to be out of your house uh, after 9 p.m. And on Sundays, you can't leave at all. But he explained that here, your house means the entire community. So on Sundays, you're allowed to walk around in the community because this is your home. And so they don't just delineate the house as your physical structure, but it's actually the entire community. And I think that actually that that speaks a lot for the, the mentality here, really, in that uh, people are in it together. Uh, they work together on the land. So when there's a big project to do on the land, whether it's cultivating or planting, people will come together that don't even own the land, and they'll all work together because they realize that's the most effective way and uh they'll help each other out so it's
1: a major thing that drew me to peru you know <clears throat> back home i could feel in in the states i really felt this separation here's my yard here's your yard here's here's what my job is i'm going to take care of me and mine but not really like oh you know you're in help i mean that's not every neighborhood in the us but mm. the vast majority it's like yeah, i don't even know my neighbors a lot of the time in the states well that and and you see somebody getting jumped or in an accident we whip out our, we talked about this before where yeah. they whip out their phones we have this voyeuristic yeah. culture of not jumping in and the first thing a lot of these people do is jump in mm-hmm. um, it's a generalization and it's not everybody here but I do feel that for example a, a friend of ours a neighbor of ours uh, had two armed robbers come into her yard and reached out to somebody and basically the whole community within 30 minutes came to her house
0: with pitchforks and flashlights to go look for these guys. Yeah. How often does that happen in the U.S.? I know, man, I'm kind of glad they didn't find the guys in that moment because, but you know, I think that's a natural outcome. Firstly, yes, these people here are just very naturally supportive of their community and also in a place where the, the police, there's just really no support. The police don't do anything here, basically. And so people take matters into their own hands. And um, I think in some ways it's actually far more effective than even an effective police force because it's a localized... And um, people take ownership of their of their community and their their space. So. Well, there's an old Incan saying that this one
1: quero, who's like the local Andean healer, said to me, he said, uh, it's Ama Yuya, Ama khaya, Ama Sula... And, One I cannot pronounce. You're so good at these languages. Uh, I'm probably butchering it, and somebody who does speak Quechua is going to hear this and be like, no, that's not right. But still, you remember it really well. It's (laughs) impressive. But it it was, don't lie, don't be envious, and don't kill. Yeah. There's two others which are like, don't love something else of somebody else's, which is like being envious, but it had a different meaning to it. But within the Incan culture, if you broke these things three times, they would make you drink chicha, which is a fermented corn drink. It's like local beer. Yeah, with a poison in it, and you would die. They would kill you. For th- wow, three strikes, three strikes, and so they had a very high society because they they kept cutting out these these little you know viruses in humanity.
0: Wow, that's that's fascinating.
1: And and some people would take this as a very brutal approach to sure to policing a society, but I, I actually makes sense our our society sure we have prison and we have this like we have the death penalty and whatnot but
0: it's so far away yeah it's it's distant and removed and really cold whereas in this context it's it's localized it's more personal <laughs> it's more personal yeah
1: and there was a woman and i don't this is a rumor and don't take this as a truth what i heard was this woman in our local area in our local community was stealing chickens she stole chickens three times and they stoned her to death.
0: See, I don't. That's,
1: yeah, I don't like that. Uh, and and I'm not saying this is a valid. But would anyone else want to steal chickens after that? Of course
0: that? not. I mean, in in some countries they'll you know they cut a finger off every time you steal something. And ouch. Yeah, I mean that's a really tricky thing because there's also elements of like, what if the person's mentally ill? You know, because mm. there's there's a lot of that too. Uh so I ima- I from what I see from the people here is there's also compassion and forgiveness and uh I imagine they're not killing every person who <laughs> No, no, no. But uh, yeah. again a
1: gen- not a not as a generalization, but as a localized event that, that happened in, the other event that happened was in a Shepibo village with Maestra Ora Felinda, or Um Oh no uh, Oh
0: anyway. A big story. Yeah,
1: a maestra and, and a Canadian gentleman who came down and um, shot her. Well, the community had been reaching out to the police, and they, there was no response, and they ended up lynching him in the middle of the community. Now, <clears throat> not, as, not condoning the acts of, of murder, but these are indigenous cultures that know how to police people and they
0: don't get support from the government here period the, not at all yeah that's another complex one because it sounds to me like there was also mental illness involved with that guy and you know who i mean there's so much to it that we don't potentially want to begin bad to plans understand. potentially yeah he could have been completely delirious and you know in a psychotic episode you know so yeah it is what it is i hate when people say that but it is what it is <laughs> it is what it is <laughs> But within
1: that, I, I'm more pointing at how the people here handle situations of emergency over how we do back home in the Western world where it's we are always reaching out to an authority figure first before we take act as a community.
0: Totally. And I think it's a natural human tendency to take these matters into community hands if that support isn't available. So we've become so accustomed to having that and depending on that. You know, if you were to strip away government and police completely there, I imagine communities would start to come together and form, you know, community watch and really take care of their own. I, I think it's a natural outcome once people realize that it's in their hands and they, they have they'd have to take responsibility. Well, it ties into this whole movement that's happening
1: currently, which is defund the police. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, man, I've seen it. Yeah. I'm not going to put my opinion on here as of right now with that, but it's it's I'm just shocked at where the world is turning. Yeah, I'm shocked.
0: It's a pendulum, man. I think the pendulum of society and reactions swings one way and then so then you get an extreme reaction the other way, which is just going to swing the pendulum all the way the other way and then one day there will be an extreme reaction the other way and it's this lack of balance and and perspective. And yeah, the, our country, our native country is in a really interesting time. I feel like this is a, a huge opportunity and also a potential really challenging time now and coming up. And which brings me to the elections coming up. And I was just listening to a podcast of Joe Rogan. Did you listen to the one? Uh, with uh, Jocko, Jocko. Yeah. where they talked about The Rock. I didn't listen to that part, no, no. So they were talking about the elections and all this stuff, and then they talked about The Rock. They want him to run for president, and there's rumors out there that he is, and he's kind of mentioned that it's something he's considered. And he's released these videos recently based on what's going on, and I watched it, and it's like, firstly, he's pretty cool. Like The, the sense I get from him is he's got a huge heart. And he's got a work ethic, probably unlike any human being on the planet. I mean, the dude is works his ass off. Uh, but he gave this, uh, I think it was on Instagram, and he just gave this little talk about what's going on in the world and calling out the president for not really standing up and speaking out about what's going on in the country. And I was like, wow, I could actually see it happening. If he could step in as an independent, I think he could win. I think he could win, and he could potentially be what seems impossible right now which is uh, a unifying person because the country is so divided but he's I think he could unify a bit maybe not entirely but he's a face that I don't know who who knows how it would go if he runs but uh, potentially he's a face that both sides could be like maybe you know feel connected to and maybe consider I'd totally vote for him
1: I mean a hundred years ago who would have imagined an actor being Ronald Reagan?
0: President? Was that a hundred years? Well, no, no but Ronald Reagan was in the eighties. Yeah. Um, but you know, he was an actor, but he had a political career before becoming president. So, you know, the rock would be more like Donald Trump's path, which is just jump right in. <laughs> but even then it's
1: like, it's so amazing. The backgrounds these people are coming from yeah. into presidency, but I do agree with you. I, would, I mean, I like the rock. Yeah. for many reasons, but he's he's awesome.
0: He would run it. He'd probably call himself Dwayne Johnson if you were running President oh, no. Rock. I like the Rock
1: fans. <laughs> as president,
0: <laughs> but that would be pretty badass. And then it's like, you know, uh, uh, Putin, President of Russia. He's a black belt. I think uh, he's pretty badass. He's so it would be cool to have a president who you know could like maybe hold his own in a fight. <laughs> he he calls people out like his old WWE days. Yeah, yeah. Russia uh, I see you. Oh, uh, it'd be hilarious, man. It'd be really interesting. I'd like I'd love to see what happens if he runs cuz I think it's needed because both candidates right now I mean, there's some hardcore supporters for Trump. I don't see a lot of people being like, "Yeah, Biden," but they'll vote for him anyway cuz they just hate Trump. But I think uh if some if a third person comes in, that people can really like feel a connection with. I think that this is an opportunity for an independent person to actually come in and take it cuz it's it's a total mess right and the, now. And the rock
1: would be a good phase of that. Oh yeah, man. I think so.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: But again, it's it's such a pendulum game. You know, I I think of like George Bush Jr. and then Obama. Mm-hmm. And then Obama to Trump. Yeah. So Back and forth Which which way are we going to go next?
0: Yeah, so yeah we need someone who's a unifier because a unifier is someone who would hopefully calm that pendulum down and just like, like the country needs to exhale, man. And just, I think a lot of people just need to be heard and listened to. And that's one thing I appreciated about the rocks. Little speech is like, that that's basically what he was talking to. He was just saying he wasn't necessarily expressing a particular opinion about what's going on other than, People need to be heard right now, and they need a leader who is there to listen and who tells them, I I hear you, I hear you're in pain, I hear you're struggling right now, and let's let's talk about it. And so, you know, who knows? I think the key for someone like him would be to, and I think this is a quality he probably has, is to assemble a team of really intelligent, thoughtful, considerate people to do a lot of this work. Because president is a huge, it's an impossible job there's too much you're, you need you're in a team. charge of the world yeah and i think the most important part of a president's responsibility is at the get-go is who he builds onto his team or she builds onto her team that's essential and if you have a bunch of i don't know i i just that that's the most important part you just need a team of i think compassionate listeners who are doers and who like take matters take responsibility you know
1: You you see him emerging more in in Congress and Senate and things like that. There's that woman, I cannot for the life of me remember her name right now.
0: Uh, From Hawaii? Yes. Yeah, she's awesome. Uh, I was, oh man, I was thinking The Rock and Hearst run together. That'd Uh, be a great team. Yeah, I mean, she's a former military. She's super pragmatic, but also really considerate. Uh, I don't know a lot about her politics, but I've heard her on podcasts and she just seems legit. Why are we forgetting her name right now? Uh Ooh. oh oh uh I'm gonna have to keep Google open. The listeners are like yelling the name right now. <laughs> <I know. laughs> we we hear you almost. <laughs> uh but yeah, that it's really interesting. And it like for Biden, you know, what I'm reading is the key for that one is who he nominates as his running mate because he, dude, the dude is he's losing it, man. He's I feel like he's not even able to be president now. He's totally, his mind is just not with it. He's just, and so it's up to him finding someone who's really awesome for him to even, for me to even consider voting that way, you know?
1: But to be a president, you have to have a certain kind of face. There's like a certain look, and I'm not saying that everyone doesn't have a different face that comes into the office, but they have a certain flavor to them.
0: Well, I think he doesn't have a flavor. No, he has me, no flavor.
1: Which is which is why people are going, hmm, Biden.
0: But I think Trump desensitized people and kind of broke the mold of who... Basically, now it's like anybody can be president. You don't have to look like or act like or speak like the traditional presidents who have come before. So, you know, whether people like or dislike Trump, I think it's created an opening for different types of people and maybe not career politicians to be president and who knows you know so
1: well that's what i thought with george bush junior hm when he came into office i mean <clears throat> his persona his his mask that he presented to the world was that he was an idiot but actually behind the scenes he was very good at rhetoric and logic
0: huh interesting
1: and he would just demolish people in question and answer sessions like he was very very good with words but he acted like the idiot. He acted. Like you think the he fool. did that on purpose? Absolutely. Why? To disarm people.
0: To ah. To make you, him think ah oh, he's he won't do anything. He's, he's an stupid. Idiot.
1: There's him holding a phone upside. I know you've seen that picture of him holding a phone upside down. I don't know if I saw that one, but I've you know heard a lot of his. There's a lot of silly. There's
0: things. that fool me once. Yeah. Fool fool me once. Fool you fool me. You ain't gonna fool me again. Something. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but these these masks or these these personas they present to the public are very different there versus behind the scenes of course they have to be
0: they have to be i'm um, i mean even in positions where i was facilitating retreats when i'm in front of the group especially early on i would notice that i'm i put on a different mask to be able to address the group and i would put on kind of an armor especially early on where just not not being totally vulnerable, and I actually yeah. learned over time that I was far more effective in that role when I kind of just let that go and just became more honest and vulnerable with where I'm at. But but still, there's an element where you you you're kind of on your toes, and you know they have well, a lot of presidents are, have to be super careful. They feel like with every word they say, because I like that you said, a lot of presidents, a lot, not all of them now. You know, obviously the mold's been broken, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. I've had. Man, I, I had a series of ayahuasca ceremonies where I had this, this like, vision, this story play out multiple times of me running for president through, like, a YouTube campaign and becoming the president. And uh, at first I took him really seriously. Alan for president. Yeah. <laughs> but, if, I mean, eventually I, I realized the metaphor in it. And, I mean, it's a long story, but it was essentially... It was just this deep part of me that was yearning to be seen and heard, and also wanting the world to be a better place, you know. And so, ayahuasca can really magnify the mind's ability to weave a story and make it seem really, really real. And I, I think uh, kind of a, a rookie mistake with ayahuasca that I certainly experienced was to to take those ceremonies as actually like a prophecy, like oh so that I'm going to be the president one day, Ayahuasca told me, whereas actually I created that story. And, you know, another side of that is through those experiences with medicine, it was, it's showing me what's possible. Is it possible for me to run for president and win? I think anything is possible with a totally focused and a drive beyond what I've probably experienced in my life now. It's, I think anything is possible. So it also just opened me to realize that, my potential as a human being and every human being's potential. And ayahuasca can really, at least for me, really help to remove a lot of these self-imposed barriers in my thought structures and thought patterns that I didn't even see were there. And sometimes ayahuasca can just open the curtain for me and and show me like, that's none of that's true. These, these, these stories, these limitations that you impose upon yourself. I think we talked about this in a previous episode. And so just, just showing what's possible, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's where people get stuck the most,
1: I would say. And, And I'm sure it's through your experience as well with facilitation. It's like oftentimes people will go so far into the realm of imagination and these hypothetical situations that they get lost. And this is why it's so important in any psychedelic experience to have some kind of sitter who is experienced with psychedelics because your mind does hit this place of infinity. And you can go down infinite rabbit holes about yourself about the world about your surroundings um, I, I remember one ceremony it was my first ceremony with a good friend of ours Todd and uh, we were sitting in the in, in this little tambo we we're having a little private ceremony and I drink the medicine and I look into the middle of the room eyes open and there's a woman sitting there and to me it was so real it was so present it was such a fabrication of this medicine that i was like i had to ask people i was like do you guys see there's a woman in the middle of the room and come to realize i drank ayahuasca and of course there was no woman in the middle of the room but there was a presence there and i believed it but without guidance or without understanding i could have believed that was real it was so real like it's like you and i sitting here next to each other looking at each other it was so real and so without this there's a grounding element to the
0: the facilitator hopefully or this you know the spaceholder, the ayahuascaero right. your your work too yeah right and
1: that's that's absolutely necessary and you know i i really enjoy the works of Terrence McKenna and you know i find them fascinating and wonderful adventures with incredible linguistic skill but he has an element of pushing everyone into the psychedelic world in such a way that it's
0: almost it's almost like just jump off the cliff yeah the heroic dose guy which i think can be really effective and useful for the right person at the right time especially and maybe only if they have a lot of time and space afterwards to integrate that and not go straight back to work or you know whatever responsibilities they have because terence mckenna i think one of his stories he what maybe was in mexico or costa rica that he was basically in the jungle with his brother for months, and they were just eating massive amounts of mushrooms. Ecuador. Ecuador, okay. Uh, and But that was his lifestyle, and he was also super experienced with psychedelics. He'd, he'd been down the road so many times, and he had such a beautiful, amazing way of verbalizing those experiences. It's like, you listened to him, and it felt like I was on a journey, you know. I love I love Terrence McKenna. I know you do. And I don't, I don't ever want to talk
1: bad about him, but I don't. It's, After working in this world more and more, I sure. see the the necessity for responsibility in that space, like everybody who walks through their door, of course, I get nervous because I'm working with their mind, body and their spirit, mm-hmm. and those are in my hands in that space as, as you know mm-hmm. it's like same thing in facilitation, same thing in working with wachuma or tobacco, mm-hmm. they're in your hands, and it's it's a big responsibility, and I think a lot of people take psych i know i did I took psychedelics without any kind of knowledge or sitter or setting or anything like that and ended up in a very bad place very often Mm -hmm. without without tools and i just thought oh man you know this is what psychedelics do
0: yeah yeah i mean i've had those experiences and they could have gone really badly but i found some of those lonely really quote-unquote bad trips in the long run i'm not condoning it but they, they turned out to be a huge teaching you know so That was like the time I I went to Amsterdam. It was right after Peace Corps, so I just finished two years in Africa, and on my way home I stopped in Amsterdam. And I uh, just to summarize the story, but back then I don't think you can do this now, at least legally. But there were they're called smart shops, I think, and you could buy mushrooms. And I bought uh, a big package of uh, they were Hawaiian. The Hawaiians. I asked the guy, "What's the strongest, most visual ones?" He's like the Hawaiians, and I remember he told me the dose, but I wasn't really paying attention. But they were fresh, and it was a box. And I believe he said, "This is enough for five, four or five doses," you know. And so I took that box of mushrooms and I uh, went back to my hostel and I sat on the bench outside the hostel, and I smoked a spliff, and uh, opened the mushroom package and I just ate one, you know, and just chewed on it a little bit and uh, maybe ate another one and time passed and the cannabis was pretty strong and time passed and eventually maybe after 20 minutes i looked down and the box was empty there was maybe one or two little mushrooms left and that led me on one of the most trying and difficult and scary experiences of my life Uh, basically i got up from that bench and i started walking it was late afternoon And the mushrooms are just kicking in gradually, gradually. Eventually, I noticed I'm walking, and it's getting dark, and the cars going by are no longer making sounds. Cars were just completely silent. I was like, okay, this is getting strong. And then it was around that point that I just lost awareness of what the hell was going on and who I was. I just remember being next to the canals in Amsterdam, I could have easily fallen in who knows you know there's all these horror stories about people on psychedelics and this is the reason i think they banned mushrooms in amsterdam is because tourists would just get take too much and freak out and do terrible things to themselves and uh i just remember that night i was at one point i remember i was walking in this plaza and and there were all these like people standing around drinking And I couldn't get out of the plaza. I was like walking in circles and I couldn't find my way out. And I, I felt like people were laughing at me and judging me. And I didn't know who I was. What had happened It was totally amnesia. It was the scariest thing ever. Eventually I, 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 I was on some big road and I sat down on the steps and started puking, 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 puking. And then I, I guess I passed out because I woke up and it was dawn and the effects had pretty much worn off, but I didn't know who I was or where I was. Total erase. And I stood up and I checked, and I had my wallet with me, and I just started walking. And Amsterdam is a pretty big city, and and I was just walking and walking aimlessly. I didn't know who I was, I didn't know where I was, and I walked for several hours. And eventually, after meandering aimlessly, not knowing anything, I looked up and I noticed the sign of my hostel where I was staying, where the whole journey had started the night before. And as as soon as I saw that sign, my whole reality came flooding back in. Oh, I'm Alan. I'm in Amsterdam. I ate a bunch of mushrooms yesterday. And oh my gosh, I have, I have a flight. I'm flying back to the States in four hours and like everything came back. But in that moment where my reality came back to me, I experienced this deep gratitude for life, for, for my family. I called my dad, just to tell him I love him. It was just this complete reset and it was, you know, the setting was not the best. The setting could have been potentially really dangerous. I could have been hit by a car. I could have fallen in the canal. Who knows? But something or I don't know what guided me that night and protected me. Or maybe I was just lucky. And then something or guided me back to my hostel. I, I looked at a map afterwards trying to retrace. And there's no way in hell I could have randomly walked back to my hostel. So maybe there was some memory in me that subconscious that knew how to get me back. I don't know. But I just felt so guided and supported by the universe, by life, and just this deep gratitude. And I'd been experiencing, you know, depression as a theme throughout my life. And during Peace Corps, I got super depressed in Africa, and I was still kind of in that. And it just blew it all out of the way, and I just felt like I was reborn that day. And I went back to the States with just a new lease on life and a new total appreciation for living because I really felt like I spent that night in a purgatory and and mental hell. It was it was it was it was just dark, it was terrible. But the other side of that was amazing. So again, I was very blessed and fortunate and I think these heroic doses can serve a purpose at the right time, but it's not to be taken lightly, and you really do want someone supporting you and a sitter so that you can go through that and not run the risk of killing yourself by accident or something stupid, you know?
1: Well, we we say that as a recommendation, cause we do talk about psychedelics a yeah. lot on this podcast and I'm a huge fan of psychedelics and I do wish that a lot of people could take them, but they're not for everybody. No. And to be aware as well, there are things that you need to do in preparation for them. Um, but through this process, so you had taken mushrooms sometime before that as well? Yeah, I had
0: probably had mushrooms like a dozen times, especially in, in college. You but know, smaller doses? Or? Smaller doses, like the dose in college was an eighth of an ounce, you know, and which was strong of dried mushrooms. So um, so I thought I was, you know, I can handle anything. Uh, and also the fact that I had combined it with cannabis, I think that's what really threw me off and, and put my mind into this paranoid confusion state. I think if it had just been the mushrooms, I might have been a little more self-aware. But I was alone in this big city at night. I mean, it was pretty freaky, man. Uh, But the other side of it was, yeah, just a much-needed reset button. And I've had, you know, after that, I had subsequent psilocybin experiences where I was with friends and I had a similar kind of reset. It was really helpful for for depression. But doing it with friends around who are keeping an eye on me, even a sitter, so a friend who doesn't have anything, is really the way to go. It's reassuring. It, it's reassuring, and actually from those experiences, I, I feel so much growth and learning happened because there was that safety net there. And, and so subconsciously I felt safe, which allowed me a certain willingness to go deep with the experience. So. And there's, there's so much that can be offered
1: through a megadose experience. Uh, a lot of people are afraid to go past that boundary. And I understand why. It rips, like you said, it rips things to shreds. Mm -hmm. There is nothing. And it's terrifying. But those initiatory experiences are what we're lacking, I feel, on on a grand scale in, in our societies. Our biggest initiation is turning 21 in the U.S., where we actually get to drink alcohol for the first time. We get smashed, hammered. Our first hangover, yeah. Woo! Or, or, you know, we've probably had hangovers before that.
0: (laughs) But... It's our first... We get to initiate by getting really drunk and spending all our money. But
1: (laughs) I I think that's this is humanity's... It's reaching for that in its own way without consciously knowing that. And In some ways, I feel maybe your experience, and I'm not trying to paint over your experience, but that you did the same to yourself without fully knowing that you were doing that. Yeah. There was some part of you that did. There was, there was, there was a yearning for something like that. Yeah. And, and of course it's terrifying, but these, we have to go to these places of extreme fear and terror to come back and really appreciate what's here. And <clears throat> you shared with me privately before about your Iboga experience. Recently mm-hmm. you did an Iboga initiation, uh, hats off. Cause that's, sounds like a very terrifying plant. You can do it to man. me <laughs> ayahuasca friendly to me <laughs> um but you you had mentioned going through a state of fear, yeah, and was that mainly the psychedelic or was that more you you said it was kind of related to your surrounding environment and yeah situation
0: yeah uh well, so that. Iboga initiation. So Iboga, for those who don't know, is uh, it's another psychoactive, psychedelic plant. It's a small kind of shrub that grows in Africa. And Africa is not known as having much of a psychedelic, indigenous kind of culture, or like Shipibo is like in the Amazon. But there is a very small uh, geographical area in Africa where uh so in central West Africa, Gabon, Cameroon, where originally it's believed that pygmies, so the pygmies uh, were using iboga for potentially thousands and thousands of years as an initiation practice, but they would also use it uh, for other reasons, similar to what some plants in the Amazon were used for to, to uh, improve vision for hunting and to connect with nature. But iboga is essentially in my experience, probably the the strongest and Psychedelic I've had, in terms of the effect, and it's it's hard to describe what it is. But what I can share is the impact was I was there in Gabon as the pandemic was going down. So essentially, I flew from Peru to Gabon, and every time I landed in a country on my journey, the country that I just left from should close their borders and shut down flights. So the it's like the the pandemic was chasing me, and I arrived in Gabon and they had actually already shut the borders and got Gabon to any foreigners, but I was let in because my host bribed some guards. So I got into Gabon. I didn't know that at the time, but I believe that's what happened. And so there was this whole element of the pandemic happening and I was eating Iboga. So during the initiation, I was there for several weeks in the week leading up to the big initiation, the big night, which is called the death ceremony. You're eating a spoon of Iboga every day and it was strong. And the, was building up and basically, because of what was happening and all the countries were shutting down, I had a lot of fear activated, fear of that the world was just falling apart, that I would never get home here to Peru, I would never see my wife again. Uh, a lot of it was just triggering old trauma so my the big trauma of my life was my mother died when I was four years old, unexpectedly and it was re-triggering that, that trauma of loss and everything's going to shit and I'm eating iboga while it's happening and we decided to go through with the initiation anyway but uh yes it was a journey through fear and I experienced you know I remember a conversation I had with someone before this whole thing before going to Africa we were talking about fear and I said you know I don't feel like I don't really have any fear anymore I'm not afraid of dying you know and that was all bullshit because uh I was I was basically shitting my pants I was so scared I was crying uh, based on what was going on and trauma being activated. And I took a journey through fear and, uh, I think I'm glad I did it. <laughs> it's taken me a couple months to actually land from that experience. And it's a whole nother story, how I actually got back to Peru in the midst of everything being shut down. We'll get into that. Yeah, That's man. It was a crazy, crazy journey. Uh, but what I can say is that I mean, two things that I learned, I mean, two key things is, A, all of my fears are fabricated by my mind, just stories that I believed in. And the other thing is about faith. And my journey coming back here was a test of faith. And I learned that the more I trust and just really set my intention on something, that doors that I never thought possible opened. And so all these doors for me getting back here like some miracle happened and I, my friends are still actually stranded there in Gabon. So they haven't been able to leave. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to describe that experience. It's just, I have a lot of huge respect for all plant medicines and Iboga to me of everything I've done. I think people, everybody's different in their energetic makeup and they connect with different plant medicines. You know, everyone has a lot of people have their one, you know, ayahuasca for you. And for me, iboga is the one that challenges me the most. Has challenged me the most, and uh, and I've had you know four experiences with it now, and basically every time it just brought me back to that core wound, that core trauma of my mother's death. And I learned so much about trauma because of iboga. It actually really showed me very viscerally uh, what trauma is and what it means to have a a traumatic event locked in the body and what that event did to my mind in terms of the programs that created themselves in my subconscious mind that created my entire experience of reality and that was an experience of of basically and I've worked through this a lot but my entire life I didn't know really see this until I started working with plant medicines but I was afraid to connect deeply with people because deep down I was afraid I would lose them. And so I spent most of my adult life living in a city for a couple of years and then moving on creating relationships and then just walking away from them before they could really get close, never letting anyone in close into my life and plant medicines and Iboga to a really strong degree showed me the impact of that trauma and, uh, and also gave me a pathway through it. Um, so i huge respect. I love it. <laughs> I have
1: two questions for you. Yeah. Uh, the first, so you, you said you were taking a spoon a day. What What is a spoon a day for like a dose for an average person?
0: You know, it depends. It depends on the batch of wood. So iboga is a wood. You're basically eating the bark of the root. Uh, for me, and it's also it accumulate it builds up. So, you know, with like alcohol, the more people drink, the more they need with iboga, and I think this is true for a lot of plant medicines. The more you have, the less you need to really feel the effect. So, a spoon, when it was strong for me, it I could consider it a full dose. In a way, not in a like I was still present with the spoon. I'm able to function. I can, you know, I could, I could do work if I needed to. But if I sit down and meditate with it, and it just depends on the spoon. It can take me places. It just when it's when it's nice, it brings this very calm and peaceful presence, a presence that I can only touch when I really meditate and just sit and breathe. Iboga can really bring that. Uh, But, but there's a fine line between that. And then when it starts to bring stuff up and for me, Iboga, like all plant medicines in their own way, shine a light on all the stuff that I don't want to look at and all the stuff. I want to push away what we call shadow material. So for me, particularly this last time it was shining a light on all the fear in my body and and this trauma and how that played out and how that caused me to react to what was going on in the world and my immediate reaction was I'm never gonna see my friends and family again and I might die I mean there was so much This where we the compound where we were doing the iboga happened to be across the street from the president of Gabon's house And so there's this constant flow of military, heavily armed military guys and tanks rolling by. When I first got there, I didn't know that that was normal. So the pandemic's going down. I'm eating a spoon of iboga. I'm super sensitive. I'm seeing tanks and armed machine guns. And my mind starts to weave a story that this is the end of the world and, um, and governments are calling upon the military to crush the population they're going to take over and everything's going to shit and we're going to die just like crazy not everybody was having that that's where my mind went so it really shined a light on where the mind goes especially in moments when it's stressed and some people in stress they're able to thrive they're able to see solutions and stay calm and grounded and just you know present with it and then particularly traumatized minds can really get activated and they can basically go into a delusional state of trauma. That's what trauma does. You know, when you talk about PTSD, you know, the stereotypical, you know, story of like soldiers, they'll, they'll hear a car backfire and they'll, that it'll activate that trauma and they'll, you know, really go into it and they're kind of gone. Their mind goes elsewhere. And that's, you know, what I've experienced. And so real firsthand, journey through the impacts of trauma and uh, yeah that's kind of the story <laughs> no it's great it points out what we were
1: talking about previously which was the importance of setting setting and sitter yeah because in that situation whether you I mean you you're a bit more experienced with psychedelics so it's like you know for your, for someone alone doing that and you you confront those kind of reactions, it's really important to have somebody be like, I feel like it's the end of the world. Yeah.
0: And I had that. And thank God I had that, but I had close friends, people with also a lot of experience. And, and one woman was there specifically kind of as our facilitator, our sitter. She's a friend of mine and she was there and she's the one that I went to. And, um, and just being able to open up and share what I'm going through. And I cried so much, like, I cried like a child. Like it was all these tears that had been blocked in me since I was four years old. Uh, Because I really realized when my mom died, I pretty much froze, you know, fight, flight, freeze. I froze. And I was frozen through most of my childhood in, in a lot of ways. And basically that I was just, I was in my head the whole time. And all these almost like the ego will build all these protective mechanisms for people that have been traumatized to protect them. So it's like it's these protectors and they're the ones driving the bus of my life. And as an adult, I don't need them anymore, but they're still there. And so it's about becoming aware of those protectors and working with them. You know, there's therapy modalities. There's one called internal family systems that basically focuses on that. It's actually viewing The mind and the ego is all these different characters that have been formed through events in our life. So to protect us, um, uh, to protect the traumatized aspect of us, this scared, alone child that was within me, all these protectors built around it, and they were driving the bus of my life. So,
1: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, psychedelics are such a major can of worms. I mean, this is why there's a whole there's podcasts and podcasts there's speeches and speeches there's scientific research that's happening it's because a lot of the western world is still unfamiliar with the totality of psychology of human psychology sure we've made incredible leaps and bounds in that throughout the years of understanding more and more the psyche but the psychedelic element adds a whole new light into healing trauma into to bringing clarity to things that we've, we've set down for a long time, but now we're picking up as, as a whole. Um, my second question, which, which I didn't say, which is kind of a funny question, is uh, was it stronger than Bufo? Maybe in duration, but... Um,
0: in duration, absolutely. It's, you know, the terming different psychedelics is strong or not. It's a really tricky word because it's just so different. I'd say Bufo is a more immediate powerful experience in terms of how powerful it is, but it's so quick. I don't think anybody would actually survive a 48-hour Bufo intensity, right? It's impossible. So so Iboga is a very sustained experience, and I call it very powerful just based on how direct it is. It's, it's no bullshit in bringing up all the nasty shit inside. And I found with other plants, especially with more experience, that I'm actually able to consciously kind of circumvent those, at least in moderate doses. Uh, but with Iboga, even in smaller doses, there's no choice. It just comes up and I have to be with it. And that's the only way through, right? The way out is through. And for especially for someone like me, I have a very strong mind and that I'm able to take myself out of experiences easily, get distracted and bufo just doesn't doesn't at least for me doesn't allow it Um, bufo or i mean sorry iboga Iboga, yeah Uh, so it's just very very direct and again different people i think different people actually also different medicines are better for some people than others and for me iboga is one that's really good for a really strong mind a really analytical, really skeptical mind. It's one that that can really get in there and just. If my intention is to heal, shadow stuff, to heal wounds, to heal trauma, to heal things that, I'm not, in my normal state, it's really hard for me to sit down and look at that stuff. Then Bufo's the one that's just like, all right, here you go, Iboga, Iboga. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> mixing them up. Bufo's great. Bufo's another story, but it out. doesn't.
1: It doesn't do that in that way um
0: yeah you know and i, I often think about this like we we were both people who were kind of have explored a lot of different plant medicines i think that and i've healed so much and grown so much thanks to them i also think that if i had just stuck to one plant and just worked with that this whole time i think it'd be just as impactful and beneficial and maybe in some ways actually more beneficial in that there's a certain depth you can go if you really just focus on one thing in anything in life right and so um, for whatever reason I was just felt called to explore different different avenues but um, I think they're all these powerful plants they're all infinitely there's just infinite potential for evolution and growth and understanding of the self they all offer that so whether you go you jump from one to the other or do one um, as long as you're doing it in a safe and effective space with really skilled space holders then they're all amazing but they point to the same thing they all point to the same thing
1: yeah, they're all they're all masters and they're their yeah. no right
0: and I think the reason you mentioned there's so many podcasts and people are talking about it so much the reason too that we talk about it so much is because it's completely undefinable and so we really, we try the, with so many words to explain. And I'm done trying to explain what it's like. What I'm more into talking about is the effects, the ben, the impacts, what it's shown me, what it's taught me. But to be able to describe the experience itself, I mean, I think there's artists who can portray it. I think visual art is probably the best way for me. Or someone like Terrence McKenna, who's just super gifted in bringing that to, you know, verbal verbal uh dimension but uh it's it's just it's beyond the mind that's why it's so powerful and the mind can try all day to explain it but it can't
1: this is where i feel a lot of westerners have such a challenge taking psychedelic medicines because through our upbringing through our schooling through our society we're told to explain to analyze to criticize to define and In that that does not fit into this realm whatsoever It's it's incredible. I mean every experience even with the same psychedelic can be vastly different Every time I sit in front of that cup of medicine. I'm like I have no idea what's gonna come and to some degree you become better and better at maybe navigating like you said those those avenues and where it tries to bring us and those resistances and um, open up to it in deeper and deeper ways, but there's still another layer. There's always another layer. Yeah,
0: and I found that with time, what I learned, because it's you don't know what's going to happen, for me the key is bringing this openness and a willingness to see and to actually not view the plant as like a drug that's going to take you on some random journey, but if I truly believe in that it's a teacher and that everything that happens in that experience is an opportunity to learn, then I'm, I'm really set up to have a journey that I can stay open to because what happens when we're faced with things that are scary or difficult, we close or we, we try to close or, um, and then it can g- actually get really miserable. Like resisting a really powerful plant can just lead to a really miserable night. <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah, I mean you can. Yeah, and or and do it that and learn. Yeah. yeah, I mean I've done it and I learned from that. So there's also some learning that happens when you resist because it'll it'll show you that you know. So
1: shows you the immeasurable power it has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is incredible. But it's it's interesting even within the language that we use around plant medicines we use the word journey we use the word uh, i traveled far it's a trip the trip it, it's there's something we already know we're going somewhere so why not respect that if i know i'm going to hike one of these mountains i make preparations i get ready for it i respect that mountain because that mountain can kill me uh, i could fall off a cliff i could slip whatever it could kill me maybe not to the extent with psychedelics it, they can kill you Uh, If you're not prepared properly, but maybe not in that way.
0: I don't want to scare people here, but (laughs) can I, well, can I ask you questions about how you work? Like really what, what, how would you define your role in a ceremony as an ayahuasquero, someone who's serving the medicine, working with people in their experience? Like what is your role? Hmm.
1: I've never been asked that question really so I have to (laughs) give me a second to think about it yeah within that space it's like being in a hospital and you have everyone's vitals up and you can see them but it has another added dimension to it which is like the mental aspect of that person where they are mentally emotional aspects uh, spiritual aspects and their physical aspects. So in that space, we're constantly monitoring that person, their peaks and their lows as they're going through this this journey. And through that, we're steering them away from places that are bad neighborhoods uh, in the spiritual realm because there are bad neighborhoods in the spiritual realm. Um, we're, yeah, in many ways we're, it's almost like being a captain of a ship where you're trying to make sure everyone on deck stays alive and not, not to again to that degree, but it's almost to that degree because like I said earlier, it's your, your life is in our hands, right. and your mind and your spirit and your body.
0: So like the, the people who are in the ceremonies with you, they're like passengers on the ship and they're, they're in their own journey. But your job is when the ship when a storm is coming or rough waters is to steer the ship so that those people feel safe. (laughs) And, and again, you said also just like steering them out of bad neighborhoods. So what, yeah. What can you explain that a bit more? Like a bad neighborhood. Yeah. Well,
1: like we said before, this realm is quite infinite and Just like if you're in New York City and you walk one block and it's really pretty and you walk another block and you might get robbed. It's very much like that. Um, There are places that people can go mentally, maybe not intentionally, sometimes intentionally, where they actually end up in a bad neighborhood where I would say there are bad spirits, there are really heavy energies, they're touching on something that's not good. You know, it's filled with what we would see is like black energy or like um, red or these, these colors come up or these designs come up and it's like, we have to keep them away from there and keep them clean from those paths so that they can travel safely through themselves without, and that's, this is where it's also like it's, it's hard because it's very much like the ocean because they still have to travel. They still have to go and see their things without us interfering in that aspect. But there's other aspects that we do have to interfere in, That are our responsibility
0: so yeah I mean so in those experiences people are really opening themselves up to a really vast world where there's helpful people helpful spirits and not helpful ones and and it's tricky
1: it's I mean it's a whole it's a whole added dimension it's a whole other world so to speak with rules and Traps and labyrinths and and things that we have to constantly keep an eye on, Um, and and in no ways, and I'm at the level where I'm so perfect that I can see every little minor detail of what where they're going, but I can get the sense of ah, that's don't don't go that way, come back this way. Um, but it's a it's an incredible thing. I mean, there's so much in this world. As many things as there are in this world, as we sit in this 3D world, there are there plus some and plus added rules and plus added spirits and things that are very strange.
0: Yeah. I'll never forget when my skeptical mind was blown. I was I was working uh, the so at the retreat center we worked at ceremonies with, you know, 23 guests in the ceremony and a role that you trained me on was working the door. And so working the door of the ceremony and, and I was allowed to drink a little bit of ayahuasca while I worked just to connect, not, you know, maybe a third of my, what I would consider a standard dose. So just enough to connect, but probably not to, to the level where I'm going to be puking or, but you know, sometimes that happened too. But I drank this little bit and, uh, ceremony started and the, the maestros, maestra started singing and I was completely lucid. I didn't, I could have done math. I feel like I could have driven a car, but also, all of a sudden, my vision opened, and I saw that the room. There were 23 guests and five healers and the support staff, but then there were hundreds of spirits, and they were like translucent, white, gray, really tall, and they were all over the room. And some of them were hovering around people, and they were looked like they were doing stuff. They were working, but it felt good. Like, I just felt this, like, really powerful, supportive energy. My mind was blown. And it was so strong, this vision, that, uh, you know, my my simple job in that role is to basically open the door for people, help them to the bathroom. But it got to a point where I couldn't differentiate people from the spirits. So I was opening the door for spirits that were coming by. And there was no one there. And then I was like, ah. And then actual people would come, and I'd be like, nah, it's a spirit. And they'd, like, walk into the door because no one was opening it for them. <laughs> But that, that moment, my skeptical mind was just blown away because I wasn't imagining this because I was someone who was actually trying, there was a very subtle skeptical part of me that was actually trying not to see that. I, I didn't believe that was possible. And so I wasn't even open to it. And then I saw it and I was like, oh, what these healers, what they're talking about when they're calling on all these plant spirits, plant doctors into the room and these supportive plant spirits. I was like, oh, they're they're actually they mean it this isn't some metaphor this is actually real deal and that just yeah skeptical mind was erased and then you know it creeps back in but then once again i have another experience and it's absolutely amazing that this physical dimension that we live in is just a very minute piece of the pie in terms of what's going on and there's infinite levels it seems uh all the way to God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God. Yeah.
1: But that's, it's funny because science is pointing in this direction. I don't know if I told you before I was actually studying physics. I loved quantum physics, this whole idea of, like, uh, you know, reality is created based on the observer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the double slit experiment. Yeah. For those of you who haven't, it's it's an experiment that starts to, basically it was an exploration into the nature of matter and how matter is. And what they found is upon observation, uh, it changed. And so without an observer, it wouldn't change. It'd be something it would be uh, basically a wave pattern of static, of something that's not there. So it's like matter doesn't exist unless you're looking at it. Anyways, it's a great idea, it's it's really fantastic. There's a great book on it called What the Bleep Do We Know or something like that. Um uh, And when I first took psychedelics, I had an experience of that, which was just, I think psychedelics bring us into the realm of that in between where there is an observer and there's another observer or there's no observer. And we have this very quantum state of, oh, we are in between, you know, this space of being and not being. And because of that, we have this access to spirits or energies that exist and have functions still I don't know where I was going with that but (laughs) within this realm yeah, I finally found something tangible within the psychedelic world I found something that was tangible that I could not refute that it was scientifically I could keep proving it and keep having it happen and it's pointing at what science is pointing at So, in some form, this is starting to step more into the scientific aspect of the mental, of the human structure, mental structure, which is starting to understand how much our influence has on the existence of this world in this very small spectrum. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I mean, I find that science, the limitation with science is that science is based on what our human mind can measure and perceive, and what... psychedelic experiences show me that there's so much that the mind can't measure and like you said when it's not observing when it's not looking for it it's there it's impossible so i don't know that science will ever figure figure out the whole story i love science i love how it works but it seems limited by its very definition that it's it's human mind measuring And observing things, but the mind is limited. Well, it's blind; has blind spots, infinite blind spots. Yeah.
1: Well, like our last podcast, we were talking about John C. Lilly and beliefs unlimited. I don't know if you found that that video. Oh. But this is where I'm saying I want to be as unlimited as possible. I want to remove any kind of barrier, whether self-created or imposed, that I have on my mind. To become more and more open to what is here and I Say that very carefully because there's so much information already as it is But there's more there's always more. There's always another layer. Yeah
0: Have you heard of David Goggins? I have yes, so I'm listening to his audiobook now and he's someone he's it's fascinating because he's someone who Without using psychedelics. He's basically through physical exertion explored the illusory limitations of his mind so he's gone so deep at watching his mind tell him he can't do this he can't run this extra mile I mean the, the dude what he the, the, the things he's done I mean firstly just he went through uh, three hell weeks in the SEALs training and hell week is probably the hardest human initiation on the planet today, as far as I know, what they, what these guys go through. It really weeds out most of the people in the training. And then to go from that to, uh, he then ran, he wanted to get into an ultra marathon called the Badwater, uh, in Death Valley. It's it's a, it's a 125 mile race. I think in the hottest time in July, it starts in Death Valley. And then you run 125 miles all the way up to the base of Mount Whitney, which is like 9,000 feet or something. And it's you know it's like a 24-hour race for a lot of people. And but in order to get in that race, he had to run another ultra marathon. He had never done it before. He was like a bodybuilder at this point, and he's like, "All right, I'll run this 100-mile in San Diego." And he basically did it with no training. And he had to run 100 miles in under 24 hours, and he did it. And by mile, I don't know, 40, 50, his body's starting to break down. He had fractures in his legs, his, I mean, the amount of pain that he overcame, but he said there was a point where he just broke his mind and he got past these limitations and pushed through it. And he came out the other end and his whole life is in his book. That's what he's dedicated to. It's like pointing out the limitations of our minds. And he says, it's like we use 40% of our potential and, and it, it takes a really, it takes a certain drive beyond a drive an obsession to get past that. So just in physical activity, when the mind says you can't, you can't go anymore, I can't do it. It's like overcoming that. And he calls it by doing that, you callous the mind. And it's fascinating, man. I, and I think that in these circles that we've been in with plant medicine, there's a lot of talk that, that I agree with about being kind to yourself and, uh, being forgiving of yourself and, and letting yourself rest and, and giving yourself self space and time. And, you know, but it's easily interpreted as just take it easy and don't push yourself at all. And I'm, I'm just finding it fascinating hearing this other side. It's like, no, push your mind, go past what it, The perceived limitations and this is not just for physical exercise it could be for any endeavor whether it's starting a business or creating something new and it's so hard for most of us including myself to actually sit down and break through these patterns that stop us from doing something and i'm just learning a lot listening to him it's really inspiring like oh like there's actually a way and i've been obsessed the past couple months with like noticing how I stop myself from doing what I want to do. And, and sometimes I get really depressed about it. Like feeling like I have no choice in the matter that everything is predetermined and that like, no matter what I try to do, like something stops me internally and it almost feel like it's programmed into me. And, you know, I'll never be able to write a book or even launching a podcast was a big thing. And so just hearing someone like David Goggins story of, like it's actually possible to break these old patterns, these limiting patterns. It takes a, it takes, it takes a will and almost an obsession. But the more I train myself to do that, the more that becomes an ingrained, and I create new pathways in my mind to actually go further than I ever thought possible. And I, I think it's really, really amazing right now. I'm inspired by it. And I I go through cycles of depression much less than I used to, but it comes on sometimes. And it's in those moments where I just feel so defeated. Like I, I'll, I'll start something and then I'll get depressed and I'll give up and then I have to start over again. And so I'm curious to see what happens if another wave of depression comes to see what happens. If I'm able to keep to actually, I don't, I don't like the word push myself, but, but, uh, not, Believe my mind when it tells me you can't do this, or that you suck at this, or that no one's going to care what you have to say. To actually see that, but not believe it, and keep pushing. So basically, not letting my mind own me. Yeah, like I think we talked about this. So making my mind into a what a a, a servant instead of a master, and that's a lot easier said than done, at least for me, man. And so I, yeah, I I highly recommend for anyone that's interested in understanding how powerful we are as human beings listen to david goggins he's 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 badass he's really and he talks about his work ethic too and one thing that i've noticed as i'm getting older is i'm really feeling like seeing that my time is limited in this lifetime and that every moment counts and i feel like the days go by so fast and a lot of times i feel like i didn't get anything done that i really want to do meaningful work and so just learning how to like structure my day and my schedule to actually do these things that are hard in the moment, but the reward it feels so good to have a day where you really created something or we, you know, the, the work we did this morning, helping load it just, it, that just feels good, man. It feels, and I'm 40 years old now and I know that time is limited and I'm, I just want to make the most of it. And when I get depressed, it's so easy to forget that. And so I, I'm just exploring. I don't want to be a victim of depression anymore. I don't have to be as a choice. And so that's what's inspiring me right now.
1: <laughs> well, you just repeated uh, Neo's journey from the matrix. Tell me more. Well, you said something that, that sticks out, uh, which is, I don't like feeling like I don't have a choice. It's exactly what Neo said to Morpheus.
0: When he was going to break through the Matrix. Tell me more. <laughs> I love that movie, but I love hearing you talk about it because you're like a master of that, of the, the, just the message in that movie. Well, yeah.
1: I'm trying to remember the whole scene, and I don't want to repeat the whole scene here, but basically, Neo's meeting Morpheus for the first time. And Morpheus is this mystical figure that he's heard about. You know, he's the guru and he meets Morpheus and he's like, Morpheus, do you believe in, or Neo, do you believe in fate? And he goes, no. And Neo says, no. And Morpheus says, why? He says, I don't like feeling like I'm not in control, that I don't have a choice.
0: Yeah. And that's, so it took me a few times watching that movie to really understand the Oracle and the role and what she was showing and basically what i got correct me if you if i'm wrong or is that there's no free will if i don't believe so if i believe that everything is fated then then everything is fated cuz
1: there's two lines yeah. there's the matrix again like we talked about in the last podcast like there's different layers to a matrix like there's the natural matrix there's a matrix of a city there's all these things that have a set bound of rules. This is the whole purpose of the Matrix. You have a set bound of rules. Some of those rules can be bent. Some of those can be broken. And this is what Neo came to find out, even within a rule system, such as a Matrix. He could break it. He could change fate. He could change the
0: world, so to speak. With his mind. With his mind. Which is what David Goggins is pointing to, psychedelics as well. Period. And what I got out of that is like what
1: we're lacking... You know, I'm speaking from personal experience. What I'm lacking or what I was lacking for a long period of time was an anvil. I needed something that would shape me. And the only thing that shapes us in in this world is experience, is challenging experiences, is pushing ourselves beyond a certain layer of limits. And, man, I could so easily not ever touch that. I could so easily sit on my couch and watch Netflix and eat bonbons all I want
0: work nine-to-five just go through the program
1: and it's safe and We're so set on a society societally. We're so set on the idea of safety That we will give up everything so that we can be safe. Yeah, we'll live on a couch to be safe but What we need is an apocalypse? What we need is a huge event, a life changing circumstance, a challenge that is so beyond us that we have to put everything of us into it that we have to overcome it in some form. There's only the only way is through. And this is what psychedelics this is why psychedelics terrify people is because they do that. They can bring you to a place of shit, that's the end of the world. Or oh, we're you know, I'm gonna die. These huge points and we we've i don't know how many people you facilitated that said i'm gonna die
0: yeah oh many times and my response is just breathe <laughs> and my response is a part
1: of you is dying let it die and <clears throat> what i what i want to say to people often when they're coming to psychedelics is i want you to understand that everything in this room everything that you're any medicine you take any person that's going to be there to help you you have to understand they're not going to help you 100%. They're not actually going to help you at all. That the only thing in this situation is actually going to be you. Sure. These are added elements or added angles or added reflections that can help you in that, but only you are going to make it through that. And it's going to get to a place where if you keep going down this road of self work of self actualization of realizing there's no limits, you're going to have to die. You're Mm going to face an apocalypse internally and it's going to destroy everything. Mm. And if we don't consciously seek that out, we can live in comfort land
0: forever. Yeah. Wow, man! I've never. That's a really beautifully put. And I think that's the power of psychedelics when done with intention. And it's like, I I think we can train ourselves basically to be uncomfortable, to basically push back, push through these limitations that we perceive, whether it's through psychedelics and even without psychedelics, this is something David Goggins talks about too, is, is embrace discomfort, embrace pushing yourself, even 5% past what you tell yourself you can do. And so it's basically training myself to, to go into uncomfortable situations. And one way to do this is I start the day with a cold shower. And right now the water is like basically freezing, And this morning I really didn't want to do it, but I had this whole David Goggins thing in me. And it's like, do it for your own benefit. The more you push through this, the more you're rewiring your brain to actually be able to embrace and handle discomfort and not knowing and venturing beyond these limitations of the mind where I don't know. And the people that I see in the world creating amazing things, building things, just changing the world are the ones that are willing to put themselves in those positions. And it's, it seems to me uh, that this is possible. You can actually, I can train myself to do that little by little. It's not like one day, all of a sudden I go out there and I change the world. It's like I change my myself. I push past my limits 5% at a time. So for me that right now, that's increasing my time in the cold shower by 10 seconds every day. Or it's when I, when I, exercise when I run on the mountain here it's like I sprint I do sprints for a little bit longer each time and notice the mind saying no and the more I do that the more that becomes my reality to realize that what my mind says is not true and I can push past it a little bit at a time and that's the beauty of psychedelics that's what they're that's I, I think when they're taken intentionally that's the point and their healing aspect of them is to help point out All the ways that we limit ourselves and for a lot of people that's it it, it's just thought patterns stories we tell ourselves that aren't true and some of them they stem from trauma essentially and psychedelics bring those into the light and we see them for what they are and sometimes it's really not pretty to really look in the mirror like that but it's by seeing them that we realize they're not true and we build and we grow and we evolve and we expand in our experience you know
1: well, I love that you brought the the David Goggins uh, element into this because as much as we love plant medicines and and working with these medicines there's there's so many things that you can do anyone can do You don't need plants. You don't need plants. Yeah. You don't need psychedelics. We're not here to push psychedelics on people. There's meditation, there's exercise, there's martial arts, there's painting, there's writing, there's music. There's so many avenues of stepping outside of yourself. To look at yourself that you know you can do it even sitting on your couch but you have to be really willing you have to be super willing to actually go there and this is what I started to witness with the beginning of this whole coronavirus thing is that people the first month people were pretty okay with it it was nice to be lazy it was nice not to you know have to work too much and as time went on and as all the netflix shows started wearing out and as all the you know ways of distracting ourselves started to get a bit old we started to you know i could say i started to confront corners of my mind that were like oh even during the day here's a little corner
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: huh, what is here yeah what's this rabbit where is it going to lead and this is where i i tried to consciously set up part a time in the day and that time of the day for me is sitting down, drinking coffee in the morning. I'm, it's my favorite time of the day. Me too. Man. For many reasons, but <laughs> within that, within that time, I almost like it's almost a meditation. It's almost a, a ceremony. It's almost a a place for me to just see. It's like my first moment of the day is greeting it, and I want to greet it in a way that I'm authentic. And that's such a. Uh, I'm trying to be careful of woo-woo words, like uh, like I read out of a book, but authentic in that. I touch me before I touch the. I go out, mm-hmm. and I want to touch myself every time. <laughs> that's <sounded> not bad. <laughs> but I want to. I want <clears throat> to reach within myself and actually feel a part of me that I know is is pure, yeah. before I step outside my gate and start interacting with the world, and not for anybody else, not to, to prove something, not to do anything, but just to actually say, Oh, there I am. All right. How's it going back there? You know? All right. You know, I'm sorry. I, I often set you aside and I, I'm sorry. I, I ignore your, your, your words when I'm, when I'm out and I'm amongst friends or I'm in a group or I'm, I'm, I start to lose that authenticity Mm -hmm. and I want to, I want to make sure I can at least touch it once before I
0: leave. Amen, man. I think that's, you know, the mantra that it's like, true change happens within it starts within and i I see so much of the conflict going on at all times in the world is partly there's a lot of bad shit happening but it's a lot of it's an unwillingness on from us human beings to actually start within and to take responsibility and to see ourselves for who we are and david goggins again he has this great exercise it's called i think it's just called the mirror exercise i call it the mirror exercise but basically every day he looks in the mirror and he talks to himself and he he does several things so and he'll write little sticky notes but he calls out all his bullshit on himself so all the ways that he feels like he's not actually living to his full potential he'll set goals for himself write those on sticky notes put them on the mirror and he'll also like give himself props for the things he's done and what he feels good about, but basically just getting really honest. And it's really interesting to actually look in the mirror and talk to myself. And it's like this whole, this whole part of me emerges. That's a really, I find a really grounded, uh, intentional part. That's like trying to guide me. And when I open space for that, I think we all have that as human beings. Plant medicines can also show us that essential self that, 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 that self that's, and I've had people ask me like, you know, in ceremony, how do I know, you know, what I'm hearing, whether it's true or not, you know, and I, and what I always say for myself is that if that voice is non-judgmental, first and foremost, it's not judging me or anyone else. And if it feels compassionate, even if it's maybe telling me things that are difficult to hear, but if it's non-judgmental and compassionate and patient, then to me that's a true voice essentially and that's that's a voice that i can listen to and it takes a certain intention of tuning in like you do in the morning or with the mirror exercise or meditating to actually find that voice because that's the one i want to listen to not the voice that tells me eh, man you should give up don't you don't need to do your practice today just go watch a movie like chill you've done a lot it's okay like that voice oftentimes is just that's the voice that's some some people call it their demons you know it's like it's the one that's trying to take us off track from from really embracing this life this this really blessed blessed (laughs) this this valuable experience like i i don't know about you but i have moments where i just like i'm like oh my god this is incredible this life this gift and it's so easy to forget that and take it all for granted and then five months have gone by and i don't know what the hell happened you know and So just these acts of remembering and I love that coffee exercise. It's my favorite part of the day too. And and I think the morning that's the most important time to set the tone. So you set the tone by looking within every morning. That's going to set the tone for your day. You know, uh, just setting the tone or for, for me, it's like a cold shower that sets the tone for my day. I go straight into discomfort and I push past my mind's limitations that sets the tone for the rest of the day. And I, Right now I'm just trying to keep that going with also rest days. Like Sundays, I'm not going to take cold shower. I'm just going to chill or maybe I will if I feel like it, but I'm not going to push myself. Yeah, eh? but chilling's great. Chilling's uh, important. I, yeah. And again, David Goggins, he, for all this talk about pushing yourself, he's like, take a day off, rest once a week, sleep in like, because if you just keep pushing ourselves and eventually for most of us, there's this, this side that's going to emerge. So that's just going to want to do the opposite and it's really easy, then you just slip into debauchery, you know? <laughs>
1: yeah, you start self-destruction.
0: Yeah, yeah, because we push too hard, and a lot of people do that. Mm. Athletes, you know, you look at a lot of athletes, once they retire, they they get, they, there's no more, they've lost that that reason, that competition, and so a lot of them get hooked on other substances or ways to numb themselves, gambling, all kinds of stuff, so.
1: Mm. yeah. I mean, what this brings up for me is what I often say to people who come and work with us is like, and I'm sure somebody else has said this, but I often say is we're learning to hack you. We're learning to hack ourselves. And not, I should never say I'm learning to hack this person, but this person should be learning how to hack themselves. You have to find tips and tricks. You have to find little loopholes. You have to find how your mind works in order for you to actually defeat it. Uh We have to, somebody spoke about this and I, cannot for the life of me remember who it was who said this but they said we have to learn to stalk ourselves
0: yeah who said that um, uh, wasn't it Don Juan yeah Carlos yeah, Castaneda and Don yeah. Juan yeah
1: but we have to learn we have to follow every one of our footsteps because man we're smart yeah even if we think we're dumb we're very intelligent yeah and in that we're gonna find every loophole and to find the easiest way out of everything, the path of least resistance. Yeah, which on a high level is great. We talk about that in like zazen and in meditation, and or even jiu-jitsu In jiu-jitsu. yeah. But that's, when it comes to like personal progress, yeah, when we see those loopholes, that's the first thing we jump to,
0: and I don't know why. I don't know why it's like, oh, it's so easy to be like, I hate myself. Well, in in jiu-jitsu or in martial arts, it's about efficiency, and so the path of least resistance is to not waste energy. I think that applies to also everyday life. Path of least resistance in this context means I'm not wasting my energy on things that don't fulfill me and bring evolution to my life and whatever that looks like to me. And so using energy, wasting energy means giving in and just not trying and just whatever people do to avoid facing responsibility and doing things that are uncomfortable that will, but that will ultimately bring them fulfillment. So it's, it's the same thing. It's actually very efficient to not to, to watch the mind like a hawk and not give in to it's trying to stop us. It's so hard. It is, man. (laughs) It's hard. It's super
1: hard. But this is, this is the reason I said that is that's the main thing I hear from people when they start to see you know and I hear from myself, I, I hear from this inner voice, when I start to see these faults or these things that I do know I need to change or I need to to go in a better direction or I know I can do better, the first thing I hear is, But it's so hard. Yeah. Oh, it's too hard to work it's so hard to work on yourself. It's so hard to change your mind. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's the hardest thing to do. But this is evolution. This is the anvil I was talking about earlier. It's like we need we need a level of challenge. But since it's personal work, it's like, ah, oh, but I can leave my room dirty for as long as I need to. I don't really need to worry about the trash or all this shit. I can pick it up later. But you can't. And the longer you wait, the harder it becomes. And this isn't like a, all right, everybody out there, it's time for you to change yourself and be better. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's more of just an awareness of, even right now as as we're listening to this podcast or as we're speaking, there's a running set of programs of natural responses of, uh, linked thought patterns of linked knowledge of things we've read, done, seen, and I'm speaking for myself. I'd see it all the time. It's like, Oh yeah. In the matrix, you, you know, but we have to understand where their limits are. And if we don't play with the boundaries of their limits, we stay stu- rooted in this area this little playground or this yard. um, And we never get to see what's beyond that. And Mm -hmm. there's always something more, even internally, even without psychedelics, even without pushing ourselves. If we just played with our mind for hours and hours and hours, we'd
0: actually figure out, whoa, it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. I mean, that's like the story of Buddha, Siddhartha the prince. I mean, it's very symbolic. He's in this palace where everything is comfortable. Everything is given to him. He doesn't have to do anything just the cushiest life. That sounds pretty dreamy, but he had this calling within that. I think pretty much everybody has some people, some of us try to silence it or ignore it, but his calling was to leave the palace, go beyond the walls and see all that was actually going on. And I think that can be symbolic for leaving the confines of the mind and the comfort, the comfort zone. And, you know, like I said, for me, it's, it's, it's a training. Like I, this whole, this whole thing about rewiring the brain I believe it's possible, and I've experienced this in myself. That that what used to be difficult, which for for me, for example, it used to be difficult to just clean the dishes right after I eat. You know, I just leave them. It was just difficult, and eventually, a large part because of my wife. She's like super, just wants everything clean all the time. I just got into this habit of like, all right, I'll just, I when I'm done eating, I clean the dishes right away. And at first, it was hard. There's resistance, but eventually my brain rewired because now I can't not do that. I can't eat and then go do something else and leave dishes. It's just not possible or or it's possible, but I'll feel, I just won't feel good. And so now it's no longer a burden. It's a habit. It's a routine. And there's all kinds of science around developing habits, but for me, it's, it's just repetition and I can make a habit and a routine out of going into discomfort and, Getting past the limitations of my mind, ten seconds at a time in the in the cold shower. You know, just that's one way to do it. Amor fati, amor fati. That's what I had to look up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Love fate. Well, thanks to you, you introduced me to Marcus Aurelius. Uh Uh, Alan gifted me a podcast, or a a podcast. (laughs) He gifted me an iPod uh, back in the days of the temple. Cause I was always borrowing people's phones and musical devices. I, I missed music and he very kindly gifted me, uh, an iPod. But on this iPod, there were some books there. And one of them was the meditations of Marcus Aurelius and stoicism. And a large part of stoicism was amor fati, which is to, to love fate or to love what is, what is. So, um, <clears throat> I sent him a video before. I don't know if you were able to watch it. I did. Yeah. Uh, he was talking about these things. Oh, you know, you have a terrible thing that happens in your life. Love it. yeah, Love it and love it as much as you love the good things. Love the discomfort as much as you love the good things. And I think that's, that's a little hack there that you kind of mentioned is, yeah, pushing yourself into these places of discomfort and loving it. Yeah. This is, for me in jujitsu, it's like, you know, when I roll with people, sometimes I'll, I'll give them a position. And I hate that position. I hate when somebody's in this inside body and, I, and I'm and i trying to escape and I, it's uncomfortable and their weight's on me and they're attacking my arms and, but I want to be so relaxed there and so at peace. It doesn't matter if they're trying to submit me. I know I can stay safe. I love it. I love being crushed even though I hate
0: it. Yeah. So for me, love in that context means accept it, embrace it. This is what is. So, I have two choices with what is. I can, I can resist it with all these stories that it shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be in this position, and I shouldn't be have this guy on side body. I shouldn't be this way. It sucks. Or this is how it is. So, no matter what story I tell myself, that's not going to change the situation. So, loving what is is accepting it fully, and then responding from that situation because this is the gift that life has given me. And a lot of the gifts, they're not pretty. But I believe they're all there for a reason and this to learn and grow and evolve and this is the school of life
1: Amen to that
0: (laughs) Cool, man, yeah Yeah, well
1: Why is that so hard though like why why do we prefer the nice easy comfortable palace? And why don't we want to step into something that's grander or
0: greater or more expansive, even if it is really ugly? I believe that it's, I don't know where it all stemmed from, but I believe that that's just how we're trained as human beings in this day and age is we're taught to go for the path of least resistance and comfort. And I also believe that a lot of the world of, of products and businesses and services they're all designed to appeal to that aspect of ourselves for things to be comfortable and easy and to distract. So Um, would you say that more, sorry
1: to interrupt, but that more of society's what it sells us is comfort.
0: Yeah, it totally sells us comfort because the mind naturally gravitates towards that. I don't know why. I mean, well, like you said before, energy, yeah
1: energy expense it's like we and i think that we falsely
0: believe that not using energy now is going to make me happier but it doesn't so the mind is very short-sighted i think that's the hacking of the mind is hacking the short-sighted nature of it which is always seeking immediate reward and comfort and hacking that for the longer term more distant much bigger reward and so what is the much bigger reward Ah. That's hard to put into words, but for me, it's just like a deep peace. Mm. I I think that that's, that's what I feel when I've had a day like that or when I've really pushed myself through exercising or or jujitsu. There's moments of peace and man, it would be amazing if it was always there, but there's moments of peace where my mind isn't looking for something to be different or looking, wanting things to be different or better. It's just like a peace with what is. I think that's, the reward, and I don't think that appeasing the short-sighted immediate gratification seeking of the mind brings that peace. All that that does is it brings the next thing that the mind wants. So it's like the mind will just keep bringing those things. It's never satisfied. You gotta hack that part. This is where I made a statement, I don't know if it was in our first or second podcast,
1: but I made a statement where I think enlightenment I personally believe light enlightenment or liberation is a trap, because it's that it's that habit that comes forward in that. I want to find a place where it's just done. I want to be done with this. I want to mm. reach a layer of just complete tranquility and peace and all knowingness or whatever it is. I want to reach that place where I it's the finish line. It's it the doesn't Z exists, you know. But it it just it well well I, I just i i say this because in the psychedelic state you can reach this place of incredibly spiritual openness peace bliss even um where you feel almost godlike mhm and it's a powerful beautiful space to feel but the trap is is like oh people are like oh you know i finished my work i'm done i've hit i'm i'm enlightened that's it now it's time when i, I you know i People are going to come to me and hear all my words. It's like, I, why would you ever want that? Yeah. You're, you're creating another barrier. Even if it's like 10 million miles above your head, you're creating another barrier. Mm-hmm. And it's this, this end goal. And what if you'll never find it? What if there's no end?
0: Yeah. I think there's a, at least there, there's there been a misperception for me about what enlightenment is. And in my mind, this I thought it was just like, complete peace and everything's fine and I don't have to there's no more worries and I yeah people come and I teach you know but from what I understand is that's not what enlightenment enlightenment is the realization that it's it's a truly embodied realization that the mind is the illusion and the mind might still give all this false material and all this bullshit but an enlightened person is like the hawk that sees all of it, sees everything the mind is doing, and manages this to, to stay in that perspective and not not be sucked into or not uh identify with the story at all you know and so i you know a metaphor I use is like inbox like so so for a while, I had a job where I was responding to emails all day, and once in a while i would you know once I respond, I cleared out of the inbox. And there were these brief moments where the inbox was empty and i was like yes i did it the inbox is empty done <laughs> and then the next morning i open it up and there's 40 more emails and so the the inbox is going to keep coming in like and i think that i learned to actually take joy in the process of just responding to the email and sending it knowing that the emails will never stop it's not about getting to the end of that it's about taking it as it comes one email, one moment at a time, you know? So I think that's the point. And and I don't even, I don't know what enlightenment is, but I find that there's, there's a way to see life. And if I see life as a process, and that's where the gold is rather than as some outcome that I'm trying to get to where I'll feel better. I feel a lot more peace when I'm just with the process one moment, each moment of time and take it as it comes. And being open yeah
1: yeah I want to say the same thing I I don't know what enlightenment is and maybe it is the end but from my small limited perspective of what I have now (laughs) and the information I have I felt personally like oh it sounds like you think you're there you think you're done like I don't know I thought I thought I could reach this place and be like oh I'm done it's it that's it we're at super peace like like Neo at the end of The Matrix. Right. But even then, The Matrix had two more movies. <laughs> <laughs> more challenges. But uh, I had an image uh, during one of my diets, and uh, I was out in isolation, and it was like seeing my mind as a like a chessboard, but a bit more intricate. And it's a great game, and I could play the game of the mind as long as I wanted to play that, that chessboard. But then once I looked up from the chessboard and looked around the room, I realized I was in a large room and there was more games. There was infinite number of different games to play that I could do with my mind. Ideas that I could play with. Mentalities I could be personas or masks or all these things I could see and be and really get involved in and be very serious and really want to beat this game and really got to be involved there. I was like, wow. So I could... I could jump from game board to game board to game board to game board and play infinitely (sighs) Then I'm just playing games Mm. And then I realized there's I could leave the building Mm -hmm. So I left the building and then there was infinite buildings with infinite games Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure that on another level again, you could step outside of that and there's infinite cities or infinite Mm -hmm. worlds and it was just like it was seeing almost like the futility of like trying to beat something and finish it. Like why why do you want to be liberated? Are you are you trying to get away from something? Why why do you want to be enlightened? Mm-hmm. What what are you trying to what do you think that will achieve? So, I I stepped back into the room, stepped back to my board, and just sat back down. And was like, okay, well, what. What does that mean? What does this board mean? And why was I given this one? Why did I start with this one? It's like I'd rather keep enjoying the fruits of existence, of creation, of life around me, of this exploration, than think I've found something. Hmm. Anytime I think I know something, I'm fucked.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. Is yeah, <laughs> I'm fucked. Excuse if, my language. If you think you're enlightened, then that's not it. <laughs> so it's this enlightenment as a goal is is it's an impossible goal because it's 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 a state that isn't achievable it's beyond mind I love life I love all these games, but I think it's important to recognize it is a game it's all i mean if you want to see it that way and I can never say I want to be enlightened because the, the me that's saying I want to be enlightened that would be the death of that. So we don't want to die. The mind doesn't want to die. So it's an impossible conversation. I mean, I, because you can't define what that is.
1: But I'll be honest in the desire of this, <clears throat> of a spiritual path in general, we're seeking something. I, I'm seeking something. I keep going to we, but I, I'm seeking something. See, I'm looking for an answer. But I don't even know the question. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I've been given the idea that enlightenment or liberation or <clears throat> satori, whatever, nirvana, these states are what I should be aiming at. Now, it doesn't mean that I want to keep aiming for per- perfection within myself, but I don't understand what they are. There's, like you said, there's such a goal. They're, they're so far above our heads that we can't conceptualize them. Yeah, so we're trapping ourselves again. <laughs> we're playing with the board again.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's. I just, I just don't want to suffer anymore. I, I want to suffer less. I guess that's my motivation. Right is to suffer less and to. Cre- there's something about creating that I don't know that I I don't know much. I've explored you know Buddhist thought and philosophy and a, a bit, and but I don't know that there's much about just creation there's something about creating and using that aspect of our of our life and our existence to create to to i think that's the fundamental nature of the universe is this this constant creation i mean look at the world look at life it's creation and death and creation and death and right now i'm alive therefore i'm in a creation phase and eventually i'll die but right now i want i i feel i guess that's also my drive is without really thinking about it, there's just a deep calling in me to create, to create something, whether it's a podcast or to write or to, yeah, it's something about creation and, and, and no longer suffering unnecessarily, meaning with what the mind does. It's really, that's it. (laughs) And create myself. I don't know. Hmm. I like that.
1: Create myself.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah, I think. I mean, we can. We'll wrap it. An up. Hour and fifty minutes, man. Yeah.
1: Wow. We went deep. Oh, well, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> at least that was good for me. I enjoyed it. That was awesome. <laughs> awesome. I forgot. I forgot. I was supposed to talk at
0: moments. I was like so ingrained in things. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Me too. <laughs> the rabbit holes. Oh yes. All right. Well, that's wraps number four. So. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Al. I love it. Yeah, man. See you next time. See you next time on Beyond Words. Beyond Words, episode five. See you then. Four. Well, the next one is five. This is four. This is four. Next is five. Four is finished.